2: It's a story so fabulous that it feels scarcely credible that it is true. But here it is. On the 9th of May 1671, with Charles II 11 years into his restored reign, Colonel Thomas Blood attempted to steal the fairly newly minted crown jewels from the Tower of London. His accomplices were his son, Thomas Blood Jr., and two fifth monarchists, members of a sect who believed they'd be part of a generation of saints who would rule for a thousand years after Christ's imminent second coming, and they were called Robert Perrault and William Smith. And here's the thing, they managed it. They escaped with the imperial state crown and other items of coronation regalia and got them outside the fortress before they were captured beside the Thames. Thomas Blood demanded an audience with the king before his presumed execution, and Charles II granted it and the outcome of that meeting is bizarre. This curious story is the subject of a new comedy that is currently at the Garrick Theatre in London's West End. It stars Mel Gedridge, Carrie Hope Fletcher, Aidan McCardle, Neil Morrissey, and Al Murray as the Merry Monarch himself. I was lucky enough to go and see it, and today I talk with some of its creators about making us laugh about history. Simon Nye is the playwright. His work includes translations, novels, TV sitcoms and drama, film and animation. He won TV BAFTA for Just William and his TV series include The Larkins, The Durrells and the multi-award winning Men Behaving Badly. Sean Foley, a double Olivier Award winner and Tony nominee, is the director. His many, many theatre shows include The Upstart Crow and the play What I Wrote. And Al Murray, as the pub landlord, is one of the country's most well-known and successful comedians, and he too has won multiple awards, including the Edinburgh Comedy Award. But he's also a historian. He's presented many history documentaries on TV. He's the author of books, including Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War, and he hosts a podcast called We Have Ways of Making You Talk, with historian James Holland, where they explore the battles and campaigns of World War II. First, I spoke to writer Simon Nye and director Sean Foley about creating the play. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It is a pleasure to meet you both. So I know that between you, you've tackled historical periods before. Sean, you did the Upstart Crow, and I know, Simon, you've done kind of, well, I guess more close to home, more nostalgic, one might say, the Larkins and the Durrells and things. Here you've gone for something that is ostensibly kind of surprising, the Stuarts, perhaps not the obvious choice for a West End play. What did you spot in the period that convinced you it was a great fit for a comedy?
3: Yes, it happened in 1671. Yes, it is to do with Charles II. Yes, it is to do with his crown jewels. But really, the essence of the play is the real-life story that was just so incredible. Of Colonel Thomas Blood, not even a real colonel, stealing the crown jewels, half getting away with it, being caught, and then mysteriously being let off by the king, when in fact he should have obviously been hung, drawn, and quartered. So it's that fascinating story which Simon did an incredible amount of research on, some of which turns up in the play. Yes, beware the incredible
0: amount of research. There'll be historians who would laugh their heads off at the amount of research I did. But for me, it was goodly amount, as they probably would say back then. Yeah, it's just got these two great characters. You look for vibrant characters who will drag the audience with them. And we've got at least two, Charles II and Thomas Blood. Real name. As we say in the play, he wasn't called Williamson or Jenkins. He gifted us with his name Blood. And he was, in his way, as extraordinary as Charles II was, my favourite king. He's a blast of sheer pleasure after the mixed years of parliamentarian grimness. And he really did, seems to me, go for it. I know he had his paranoia, and who can blame him because of the atmosphere of spies everywhere and he could have been assassinated any day, but he just enjoyed himself. I know he wasn't perfect, but he seemed to bring the people with him, generally speaking, at least in the early years. And hats off to him, he opened the theatres and that's obviously vital, good work that he did there.
2: Let me ask you a couple of more questions about the history, Simon, and then we'll have a think together about making this into a play. Why did Blood want to steal the jewels? And where does his accomplice, Robert Perrault, fit in?
0: For their pecuniary value, for the fact that the crown jewels, they've been remade only 10 years ago for Charles's coronation I don't think history records when he went to do some groundwork and went to visit the tower to see the jewels, whether he was going more out of sort of interest and idle curiosity rather than casing the joint. But for him to find what he did find, that they were guarded by a 77 year old man, basically keeping them in a cupboard. And I know you had to get into the Tower of London, but essentially it was just too tempting not to do it. And he had a history of obviously attempting things that were mad and madder, perhaps, and even less likely to be successful. I think he thought, I'm just going to give it a go.
3: There's so many details within the story. He went to case the joint. He decided to do that dressed as a priest, basically, or a parson or whatever, with a fake wife, who was actually an actress. Get let in, have a cup of tea with Talbot Edwards and his wife while casing the joint. It's absolutely extraordinary. Why not make a play of it is... Looking at it from the other perspective, why on earth not make a play about that? Because you can bring in so many elements that, in the very lightest way, let's face it, it is a comedy and a romp and lots of laughs, but it resonates with a lot of history today. We've just had a good old look at the crown jewels as well on the coronation. It was all of these elements at play when we thought it would be a good idea to put it on.
0: And to answer your question about Perrault, we did slim down slightly his heist crew for obvious practical reasons, but Robert Perrault, yeah, just an amazing sort of angry fifth monarchist preacher who, as he apparently said in real life, he hated the idea of maypoles and mince pies and things you think, oh, there's so many other things to hate before you go for the maypole. And he was just fueled by anger and in a way that Thomas Blood was more fueled by, I'm not say joy, but certainly by fun. Just the idea of the chemistry of them to the one just ranting about the political and religious situation and Blood trying to just concentrate on stealing things. And his son along, the kind of really bad idea, don't take your family members on a heist, I think is one of the takeaways from the play, especially not his son. They talk about bad luck and Perrault says at one point, my father was to death by birds, true story, and I think it was a true story. I read it somewhere, I wouldn't have made that up, I haven't got that imagination.
2: That was one of the throwaway lines I wanted to ask you about. Another one is stitching Cromwell's head back on. It feels like you can smuggle huge amounts of history into this play because the comedy allows it and because the historical detail is so funny.
0: It is, and unfortunately, in a way, but it's a play, so you don't want the distraction of the horrible history style thing going underneath. We could have had surtitles saying, this bit is true. This
3: bit is for comedy purposes only. And a lot of it would have been true. Another thing that was true is that Charles II was told about the theft of the crown jewels while he was having an audience with a French noblewoman, which is the opening scene of Act Two. for those of you who are desperate to buy tickets. And I'm not going to give too much away, but Simon wrote, and then we staged this idea of King Charles having an audience in front of our real audience, as it were, we pretend that the audience in the theatre is the court having an audience with a French noblewoman and so that became again one of the scenes entirely based on reality although going through the meat grinder shall I say Simon of your imagination I don't know something like that.
2: How did you come across the idea Simon in the first place?
0: tragically it wasn't my idea it was another Simon Friend the producer who brought it to me and I'd written another play that was set in a similar period actually which I still hope will see the light of day and he was reassured that I could handle the 17th century language which initially I was very po-faced about and I did I think Sean probably is too nice to openly roll his eyes but said we have to use the authentic language of the period and as the rehearsals went on I slightly realized the absurdity of that because you want to create an impression of authentic language but don't be a slave to it because it can kill It is a comedy.
2: Well, let me pick up on the language because I really enjoyed the register that you chose in the end. It did make me laugh out loud to have Carrie Hope Fletcher singing Swive Him, Swive Him in the opening song, perhaps in a way that wouldn't have worked for a non historian. I'm worried
0: about that because I did think, I thought I'm going to allow one word that nobody knows, I didn't know. Let's educate ourselves, not ever do it. One word. Let's get people Googling. And I think they probably have.
2: Yes, well, they will now. You know, I thought that was it's great, but it is interesting to try and choose that because when you're setting something in that period, one of the difficult things for our modern usage is they don't use do and don't, and that's tricky. And how do you work around things like that without it starting to sound too cod, you know?
0: They didn't say sorry apparently. At one point, one of our lovely actors did say, okay. I think it was just a nervous reaction and I died a little bit inside. A little bit of compromise was the answer so that we didn't make people, A, need 20 minutes to get into the rhythms of the era. And also because it's never quite authentic because the speech patterns are different. So you can get the vocabulary right, but you never actually quite capture the period rhythms.
2: Can I pick up, Sean, about the way that it engages with the audience as if they are the court? The immersive theatre aspect, the involvement of the audience, is very funny and very fresh each time. And I wondered what you were sort of hoping to achieve with that. What was the kind of plan for that as part of the play?
3: I guess what basically you're trying to achieve is more fun in the end, supposed to be fun, but it is based on another aspect of how we decided to stage the play. I was very keen anyway on trying to evoke with the material, with the play that was written, but then in the way that it's staged and performed, what it was like to be in a theatre in 1670s, which was so much more kind of anarchic. People have learnt to be a nice middle-class audience who sit down and don't say anything throughout the an entire length of a play. This just never happened. People would be walking about, people would be buying pies, drinking, there would be people copulating in the boxes, that was completely well known. You've got a box, you maybe watched the first five minutes, I don't know, maybe seven or eight minutes, but then you shut the curtains and you had your night out, as it were. But the sort of anarchy of seventeenth century performance, and indeed eighteenth century performance, and indeed nineteenth century performance, up until with the technical advances in lighting and the idea of smaller theatres, strangely, and a new generation of playwrights right towards the end of the 19th century this sort of naturalistic theatre they invented then and people became obsessed with it it must have been revelatory and it was you read about this oh my god they're like real people on stage acting real things this was completely new from about 1885 1890 onwards but before that the entire history of theatre is about the performers interacting with the audience in a way that seems strange to us now but not if you've as most people do have ever been to the theatre have been to a pantomime which is the only real genre of theatre left that really does that but of course if you go back to even music hall vaudeville these forms of theatre which aren't the well-made play the middle class play still have all of that in a way what we try to do in the crown Jewels is evoke and have a flavour of that audience experience within the play while telling this story.
2: And in terms of the content, we've got this lecherous monarch, we've got this brilliant story of the heist, but we've also got allusions to more serious stuff like the Irish situation or you know these mad people the fifth monarchists who (laughs) feel like the apocalypse is coming and in the program you talk Simon about comedy is tragedy plus time do you think that comedy allows you to kind of deal with this weighty stuff in an irreverent way but that somehow is honest true to that stuff at the same time
0: I think so obviously occasionally you see a car crash of a delicate serious idea not being at a find the best form in a comedy. But I think these are fairly robust themes and the risk of sounding pretentious, the idea of a heist, it's a kind of an echo, if you like, of countries stealing other countries. And the idea that Britain felt obviously it should own and run Ireland for the last millennium run so deep that Charles just doesn't understand why somebody like Blood and others would query it. So the idea of theft of other nations is certainly there. And the idea that he quotes that eventually Ireland and all our other colonies will come to love us. It clearly has been found out by history. I suppose that's the main thrust of our seriousness. But I love to see serious themes smuggled into comedy. And I'm not saying everything should have a laugh attached, but it's a good place to start, I think.
3: For me, that's what comedy is, really. Comedy isn't separate from real life comedy is a kind of distillation of real life that can make you laugh it's often said that the two best subjects for comedy are sex and death they just make people laugh it's just the biggest taboos when you go near them in the right way they just provoke laughter in human beings this is what the great farces of the earlier 20th century french farce is fado that kind of thing is all based on the idea that everybody knows that the middle class are eyeing up each other's neighbors and going around having sex all the time but nobody must talk about it and that's at the basis of basically all farce certainly sex farce there is black farce the farce of death as well and throughout history comedy has dealt with these really big and serious themes In a way that is very important for human beings, obviously, to be able to laugh at these things, to hold things up to ridicule or hold themselves up to ridicule, is why we like comedy, really.
2: And it actually also, to sound even more poncey about it, but it is a form of rebellion against the dominant transcripts of power, right? It is a kind of form of resistance. Laughing at things is a way of turning the world upside down. These are the hidden transcripts.
3: It's the fool and the king. The fool is the only person in the entire court who can take the piss out of the king. That's literally the function of a clown, of a comedian is to look at everything and just tell it what it is. Is it someone like Joan Rivers, for example? Her early catchphrase is, can we talk? Meaning, can I tell you what the reality is? And her entire career is literally saying real things, pointing it out, that we're not allowed to, we shouldn't say Well she said. It's such a genius. She said it in an incredibly funny way. But definitely that's what comedy does.
2: Simon, did you have any sense of rules when it came to writing? We've talked a bit about language. There must have been things that you had to make up. Did you have kind of guiding principles about how to proceed with this?
0: If I had guiding principles, they were for my own convenience and wouldn't hold up to scrutiny. I think, could it happen, I suppose, is the one you always start with. And that's blown out of the window rather by the fact that these crazy things did happen. But you still, realism, let that be your guide, in a way, especially in comedy, we're not doing a fantasy so no i don't think so i'm a tv writer by trade so i try to not make it look too much like television let's make a scene last for two minutes rather than one for example maybe that brings a bit of a tv sensibility perhaps to what can be a dry West End experience occasionally where you live and die by your entertainment value and you will lose an audience they're obviously locked in almost into the theater so perhaps i should have relaxed more but you have to have them <laughs> before they go off And switch to Netflix. So I think making every page have something compelling and keeping the tension going. But no, be entertaining. I think that's all I can offer as a rule.
2: Absolutely. And having seen it myself last night, I can say hand on heart that this was an uproarious night out it was deeply, deeply funny and I had a really, really good time so I would join in with the rest of those audiences and say, do yourself a favour and get down and see this thank you so much for coming on to talk about it thank you for having us on after the break, I'm joined by Al Murray to talk about playing the part of the Restoration King
1: Hi, I'm Eleanor Yonaga, and I'm thrilled to be joining Matt Lewis to co-present Gone Medieval from History Hit. Twice a week, every week, we set out to answer the big questions that have vexed people for centuries. Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? Roads, buildings, walls, churches, houses, manuscripts... Why did Edward I mourn his Queen Eleanor so much?
0: He was very good at making a show for people to see that was going to influence how they would understand him or his campaigns or anything like that. Did Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok really exist?
2: Maybe yes, maybe no. The sons who were attributed to him were definitely real people. So join me,
0: Eleanor Janaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow
1: on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Al, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for inviting us to see your play, which was completely wonderful. I enjoyed it so (laughs) much. Thank you, thanks (laughs) so much. (laughs) It's very funny. And one of the problems with chatting about it today, I was thinking, how can I talk to you without completely draining it of all the fun?
1: (laughs) This is always the issue. It's the old saying about discussing comedies like dissecting a frog, that you're going to kill it. But yes, it is a peculiar thing, actually, to be playing someone who live and who we know a fair deal about and then serve that up as entertainment. It's a strange business. And I was first approached about the play about nine months ago and we did a reading. And I just thought, Charles II, if you're going to play any king, he's probably going to be the most fun. Although I know there are people who think he's a ghastly, depraved, priapic horror. I know that. (laughs) Inevitably. Something uh, of what you're bringing to the role. Yeah, I think so. Yes, I think so. And also, you you think, there I am typecast. And also, I can't think when I last saw him portrayed or anything. The scope for fun with the character seemed boundless. But then at the same time, I've approached you with with two heads on. So you come at it as a play and you think, got to learn my lines. And we'll thrash out where we think the funny points are and all that sort of thing. But also, then I went away and did the reading and thought, I want to know about him now. And the century as well, where he fits in the century rather than just as a restored king, because the 17th century is completely bonkers.
2: Yes, it is. And I think with Charles, <laughs> what's so interesting about him is his formation. It's all that period of time yeah. when he's not king and yeah. how that shapes how he's going to react when he becomes king.
1: Yeah, all those years where he's just Charles Stuart. depending on your preference, he's just a man again. It's so interesting. Clearly, his political instincts and all that sort of stuff are honed during that period. There's that really interesting moment where his mother is going to declare one of his brother's catholic and he's going please don't do this because you're gonna set us back and don't you understand where we went wrong and i think that is so fascinating that he's not like his father you know who in the end cannot deviate from thinking of himself as an unconditional king charles ii knows it's conditional knows he's got to play with the cards he's dealt with and all that sort of stuff and i think that is fascinating and all that time where he's Louis XIV's older cousin and he's hanging out with him and then where he ends up in European power politics. It's fascinating.
2: I was really struck by the character that you're bringing out in Charles. There's a combination <laughs> of playfulness and lasciviousness, but yes. also there's unpredictable moments of... Tell me about what you were creating, what you
1: had in mind. We figured that the drama at the core of the play is when Blood and the King meet and you have to create the full jeopardy that Blood finds himself in, having tried to steal the crown jewels. He could swing and he could swing at any moment. And Charles, in a way, would be absolutely entitled to send him to the gallows. People have died for less and all that sort of stuff. There is this sort of ferocious character at the heart of it. And a man who's experienced losing everything as well and all that sort of stuff. And the thing people say about Charles is that no one really knew what he was like, that he never really truly revealed what he was like. So is the display of ferocity a thing he feels he needs to do to show being kingly? Because we have that bit where I get someone to slap me and it's really to see if the guy will slap me and I do all the ferocity, but it's actually to see what people will do. He's playing with people all the time. And what we know of Charles is he was like that. That's why he was so interested in theatre, because he understood that kingship involved a fair slice of theatre. So we were trying to show that, yes, he is a despot, but he's also playful and if he's angry... Is he really being angry or is he putting on a show? Because he laughs at everything. He's laughing at nothing as well. That's the other thing. We have him finding everything funny, but in a controlling way. And I think that feels to me like, obviously, in this day and age, there's a great emphasis on, you can only play a part if you've experienced it in life. But I've never been a king. (laughs) We've had to make it up. My background doesn't deliver kingship. So we've had to make it up.
2: That actually reminded me of In A Man For All Seasons, where you've got Henry VIII who says something and turns around and expects everybody to find it hilarious. Yeah. And also has that kind of strange, hard-to-pin-down nature. So there's a kind of continuity of playing kings with that. Oh, I think definitely.
1: I imagine that if everyone laughs at every joke you make because they think that's probably the best thing to do, surely you end up full of doubt if you're a king, because is anyone ever genuine with you? Could you ever know? Although... Is that a thing people aspired to in the 17th century? Is people being genuine with each other? That's a very modern way of thinking about interaction. Maybe if you're king in the 16th, 17th, you don't care if people are being genuine with you. You just want them to do what you want them to do. It's the sort of sliding floor of all the interactions because we've got this very funny stuff with my footman, Adonis Sadiq, who's an absolutely brilliant actor. If I click my fingers, he will laugh. If I ask him an opinion, he says, I'm fearful of affording an opinion. All that sort of stuff. And when he has to tell me that the crown jewels have been stolen, he's playing it as absolutely petrified as you might. It must be very difficult bringing bad news to someone like that. As we saw just last year before the Ukraine invasion, when Putin bawled out his head of intelligence, said, why are you bringing me these reports that I don't like? And the guy's going, I'm just trying to tell you the truth, boss. What that must do to you as a person. So we tried to put some of that into the king. Although here we are, we're dissecting the frog. We're trying to make an entertainment after all. Yes, (laughs) absolutely.
2: (laughs) And you actually play, of course, two characters in this. You are also playing Talbot Edwards, Yes. Oh, tell us about him.
1: He was the deputy jewel master. What's extraordinary about this play? We're playing it for laughs and we're playing it in the style of a restoration comedy, as best we can. But the story is true. Talbot Edwards was the deputy jewel master. He was 77. He lived there with his wife, whose name we don't know, so we never get a name in the play, and his daughter Elizabeth. And they weren't being paid, so they were literally relying on tips from tourists They had the crown jewels just locked in a cupboard. And the assault on Edwards, he's the only witness. So some of the things that the robbers in the play say are the things in his account. When Thomas Blood Jr. says, he's dead, I'll warrant him, which he says in the play, that's what Talbot Edwards says was said. So there's things in the play. They're simply the story. They did have an actress called Jenny Blaine with them, and they did do the robbery in theatrical disguises, which is incredible. It's an incredible story. And perhaps the
2: fact that what we've got is his account explains why in the play, he's a little like (laughs) Rasputin. He just won't die.
1: Yes. We just just... don't know the extent of the assault. And it's a great story, you know, that they duff him up. For all we know, he said, all right, go easy, lads. And we don't know. But what the play is based on is what was said and done. And I think there's something really brilliant about the fact that Charles relicensed theatres when he came back to the throne after 18 years of them being closed. He also licensed women to act, let women play female roles. So you've got this extraordinary thing. that Then an actress is accomplice in trying to steal the crown jewels. (laughs) No good deed goes unpunished (laughs) ever. And there he is. And actors didn't pay tax, which I think is really interesting because he loved the theatre so much. So you've got this very peculiar thing that an actor's trying to steal the crown jewels, but she wouldn't be an actor if it wasn't for him. Like it's all this sort of stuff in it. That's why you'd write a comedy about this because it's funny. It's a funny story and an amazing story.
2: Do you think there's something about this period that particularly lends itself to comedy, that sense of playfulness and no, suddenly no holds barred all bets are off. Everybody can play as they wish in a way that they haven't been able to do for years.
1: Yes, I think so. Obviously, when you look at the history, you're struck by the sort of generational turn that, all right, we've had enough of that Puritanism and it's gone too far That feeling. And of course, we'll never really know if Charles is the vibe or if he's chasing the vibe, following the vibe. Is he the chicken or the egg? of the era certainly his personal morals then cause everyone a problem because after all kingship is brought back because kingship is morally continent and wholesome in the way that protector it wasn't and then he is not at all morally continent or wholesome in the way that a king should be even with this idea that everyone's letting their hair down there is tension in that but yes i think it must do i mean it plays about puritans can only be so funny i suppose it's stiffs going around telling people off which after all malvolio is your model for that once you factor in, if you think of Malvolio as a Puritan and that that's what Shakespeare is writing about, which is a thing we're not necessarily in touch with anymore. If that's how you see it, then Malvolio's treatment in Twelfth Night suddenly makes sense because he is a declared Puritan. And it's not quite a thing that matters quite so much to us, I think, or is expressed through the play in the way that it would have been then. But yes, I think, yeah, it's a time for people letting their hair down and... Obviously, at the same time, you've got this sort of push into science because they want some facts. They're fed up with endless opinions about scripture and the sort of shifting sands of extremism. They want some things they can actually solidly rely on. I think that's also interesting, comes at the same time as the restoration. I went to a lecture ages ago about the coining of the word fact in the way we understand it. And I can't remember who the historian was, but he basically got on the Guggenheim project and found the first instances of the word fact where it means an indisputable thing like the sun comes up in the morning. Something you can't argue over. And it's around this time. In fact, it's towards the end of the protectorate where people are going, look, we actually need to nail down some things that we all agree on because we're disagreeing about everything. And I think that's really interesting. And that that's happening at the same time as there's this sort of moral slackening of the belt, as it were, in England. I think it's just so interesting. There's all these currents. Women come off in
2: this. To be frank about it, we've got a pretty misogynistic king and it's daring to put that in a play today, right?
1: Yeah, I suppose so. But it's true. <laughs> yeah. In fact, and that actually, that's a really brilliant and interesting point. We're not making up what he was like. This is a depiction. And you can't depict him honestly if he's not like that. That would be untrue. What do you value more, the truth about what he's like or what we'd rather he'd been like? And that you can't invent a Charles II who isn't lewd and leering and hitting on absolutely everybody all the time. He said something like, you don't understand Cupid the way I do. I think he said to his sister, you don't understand. No one has this acquaintance with this little gentleman, Cupid, the way I do. In other words, he's saying, "I'm look, I'm completely caught in this. And obviously no one would say no to him. So again, it's like everyone laughing at his jokes. If everyone will sleep with him and they're doing it for advantage and they're doing it for power and or they're doing it because just because he's the king and power as an aphrodisiac, and all those things. That's what he was like. We can't portray him as anything else. And you're right, though. He is misogynistic, and he is ghastly, and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, and actually, the other thing that is true, which is very funny, who do we hate? The Dutch. There's a, a real, it's xenophobic as well. Because again, if you're going to talk about the 1660s, 1670s, that's what's going on.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And they've come out of the protectorate, which was obsessed with fighting the Spanish one way or another. And in terms that we would never, ever dream of using. And you switch to the Dutch. And behind the scenes, he's taking money from France. He's supposed to declare for Catholicism and he'll get 200,000 pounds. It's quite a lot of money, but there's all that going on. But 1667, when the fleet's destroyed at Chatham, they tow away the English flagship, which is called the Royal Charles. So, of course, he's taking it personally. Of course he hates the Dutch. Why wouldn't he? And the bit I added after all the reading, when he says, and the Scots as well, because he spent a year in Scotland being lectured by covenanters about what a terrible man his father was. And he did say, I'd sooner be hanged than return to Scotland. I gets a laugh, but it's not phony. That's how he felt about it. And I think that's fascinating that he said that and it offers us a laugh. for 450 years later, It's absolutely magnificent. It's a brilliant thing.
2: It is interesting, though. I want to get back to that place where you started, this idea of playing someone who actually lived. And when I speak to novelists, I often say to them, how do you feel about your responsibility to the people that you're writing about? Yeah. Are these real people? Who yeah, live? yeah, yeah. And so on the one hand, you're accurately quoting things that you know he said. And on the other hand, I'm sure there's things that he wouldn't approve of or there are ways that you've taken him, introduced him. You're interested in history. You care about it. You've written history books. Mm. You've made history documentaries. How does that sit with you as the historian part of yourself as well as the comedian?
1: I think in the end, when we look for people's character, it's like quantum physics, isn't it? It's unobservable. There's no way in the end of knowing. Really, what he was like in the history I've done, I've written a lot about Montgomery, the Second World War field marshal, who I'm fascinated by because he's such a controversial character, and I've read a lot about him. But in the end, I'd like to have met him so I know what he was like. Because that's I so couldn't.
2: interesting. I would even go a step further and say I'm not sure we know who anyone is. We don't know ourselves yeah. terribly well, and the best chance we have of someone we live with, we might get to know what they're like. No, like exactly. I'm a really bad to judge of character, but I think 100 <laughs> or 500 years. Yeah, of course, it's almost impossible.
1: You're, it's echolocation at best. You send out a sort of ping towards them, and you, you see what comes bouncing back. And what we get back from trying to locate Charles is that he is a man who loved life. And famously, I can't remember who said it, Charles Stuart, he'll be king for a hogshead of wine. That's all he cares for. And a woman. He'll do it for that. So that's what they thought of him at the time. But even then... He made an effort to make sure people didn't know what he's like. With my history head on, I feel responsible that we're getting him right, but also that it's impossible to ever really know. And then this is a piece of entertainment, so we're trying to present him in an entertaining way, but also have some drama in it as well, that he is unpredictable. We do not know what he's going to do next. And I think partly because he doesn't know what he's going to do next. Because what would you do about Thomas Blood? The guy gets the crown jewels, gets his hands on them, smashes them up to steal them. How do you deal with him without appearing weak? How do you deal with him and ride the political consequences if you've upset the wrong people? Because the Duke of Ormond, Blood had tried to kill him the year before, had kidnapped him, had taken him to Tyburn to have him hanged. Always involved in the plot to do that. Tried to kill him, I think, several times. And so it, part of Blood's condition, and this constitutes a spoiler, but I'm sure a switched on history audience like you would know perfectly well that Blood is pardoned and given a pension, and given land in Ireland, and no one knows why. But one of the conditions is he had to write a letter of apology to the Duke of Ormond for kidnapping and trying to murder him the year before. <laughs> what the hell's going on there? Yeah, well,
2: that's mysterious, isn't
1: it? We'll never know. But then all history is mysterious. As you say, we don't know what people are really like. In the end, you can never, ever know. And that's the joy of history, is the sort of imaginative, conjecture's the wrong word, but imaginative the illustration leaps. and colouring in.
2: Yeah. yeah, The leaps between the facts. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, what you're doing is, or you have done is created something that's really funny. It's a great piece of entertainment, but that people who are history buffs can go to and enjoy in all conscience, knowing that what they're getting is actually the real deal.
1: Near enough. Yes. He's been fed into the entertainment mincer and we've turned the handle. You know, I think you're getting Essence of Charles II, as far as we know from the play, which is like Thomas Cromwell in Wolf Hall, although that book wasn't written for laughs. <laughs>
2: I spend a lot of time thinking about historical characters, but I don't get to try and be them on a daily basis. Has it made any difference to both your thinking about Charles in terms of yeah. playing him, but also more interestingly, perhaps, you as a person, kind of what are the ramifications of playing a historical character in life?
1: <laughs> Things made me think about most, and funnily enough, this is a thing we've been talking about a lot on the podcast on Weird Ways Make You Talk, is trying to create a sense of the present when you're thinking about the past. And trying to imagine not knowing about tomorrow. Because the whole question of an awful lot of historical inquiries, you know, the outcome, you know what happens tomorrow in the way that we don't. So, in a way, trying to have a present moment in the role of the king is the sort of thing I've been trying to think about and that's really reflected into my thinking about history. Because the next book I'm going to write is going to be about a single day in a battle, in the middle of that battle, before you know the outcome. And it's a very well-known battle that whenever it gets written about, has tons of foreshadowing like ladled onto it because we know the outcome. I want to know what was it like on the Tuesday when they didn't know what was going to happen by the end of the week, because that's what today is like for you and me and for everybody.
2: that's uh, so and... interesting. I think it is a radical act actually, to write history chronologically nowadays because we are so used to using these dramatic devices of saying oh and but they didn't know that this wouldn't like that Uh,
1: exactly i literally want to end this book with what would tomorrow bring and then if you want to find out you're going to have to buy another book by someone else (laughs) that says what happens on the wednesday so that's the thing i've been thinking about a lot and that's gone into we do have a retrospective device in the play at the start where it goes oh you remember the story colonel blood and then we go into it but it's the idea that you can see no further than what I suppose is the event horizon. We're only ever moving forward in time. We don't have in our lives, actually, the historian goggles. It's impossible. So playing the character, I wanted to make it feel like a present moment. But now that's also always been my approach to stand up is that tonight's the night. Every show is completely different because I improvise so much. So every show occupies its own moment in a way that if I did it exactly the same every night, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't for me. It wouldn't for the audience for what that's worth. That's, largely sprung of me not wanting to get bored and keep it interesting and fresh for myself. But also it's made me think about kings a lot. And there's a line in it where Blood says, what is a royal household except a band of naughty fellows trying to avoid being caught out? And it's made me think about that an awful lot. And especially with the coronation, we've had to chew on the subject or it's been acted out in front of us again. And I think that's fascinating. And that Charles was a restored king, that they rebooted the monarchy around him is really interesting. It felt in a small way this year, because the Queen had been forever, it felt like they were rebooting the monarchy this year. It a to remind us of what it was. Because if you've got churn, if you've got a coronation every 15, 20 years, we all know the score. It felt this year like they were having to go, we're going to anoint a guy. Do you know what that means? No, of course not. Suddenly, the Archbishop of Canterbury, you see why he's important in the British establishment or what his sacred role is, which is a thing no one would ever talk about. The Archbishop of Canterbury is normally in the papers because he said something that's upset the Conservative Party. He said poverty's bad or some sort of radical thought like that. So that's partly why the plays on this year, because there was a coronation. So it felt timely and topical. But that's the thing that's really made me think about. What on earth are kings? What on earth's going on? Why have we still got them? What's happening? Yes, but and I why... think
2: this year is so interesting about having to completely reconfigure the optics of monarchy. Yeah. When Elizabeth was crowned, there's she's this beautiful, fresh-faced 25-year-old, yeah. and yeah. there's all the glamour of the princess becoming queen. But then you've got somebody in their 70s being crowned. It's completely different. And, yeah, you
1: don't get the renewal, the symbolism of renewal that Britain kind of needs in nineteen. 52, which is after all, she symbolises that, doesn't she? I think the interesting thing about monarchy after is you can project anything you want onto it. So if you're of the view that we live in a country that's on the buffers and it's clapped out then you crown a 75 year old man king (laughs) the symbolism of who he is speaks to our time or it's just the luck of the draw that's who we got and i think it really felt this year like they were having to completely re-establish the monarchy and they obviously it worked because there were some people with some placards saying not my king that's all pretty standard when you look at the history coronations and you know there's always been people who don't like the idea of monarchy whatever
2: last night there were a couple of texans in the house and i wondered (laughs) at the end when we've got this sort of rather glorious song and uh, yes. the chariot and King Charles with his crown and orb and scepter and all the yeah. rest of it, where it felt it was a great big send up of monarchy and yeah. of Britishness and of nationalism yeah. and yeah. patriotism and that sort of thing. What does it mean to be putting on a play with that kind of quality in this year, do you think?
1: Oh, I think it would be weird if we didn't. So much of our cultural diet, the questions of nation and nationalism and patriotism have been pinging around for the last decade and more, actually. In fact, it seems to be part of our cultural diet. Whether you like it or not, that question hovers and hangs. And obviously, I imagine it does in every country. And this is a a classically British thing to say, we're the worst for that. I don't know, because I don't know what it's like in Romania. I can't speak for how nationalism expresses itself in Chile. How could I ever know? But yeah, it does feel like it's not so much a conversation the country's been having with itself. It's one great long sort of sulk we've been having with ourselves for many years. So it's got to go in there. I think it'd be really weird if we didn't. And it's also been my subject with the pub landlord for a really long time anyway. So if it's in something, I'm like, yeah, of course we'll do that. Of course we'll sing a ridiculous song at the end about how the British are the best. Why wouldn't we? And obviously, if you go back to the period, Britain, and they were calling it Britain by this point because the United Crowns was playing this sort of game with the Netherlands and France and Spain and trying to locate itself as a power and of course, because the protectorate had such a big navy, everyone had to pay attention to them and everyone had to suck up to them, which is one of Charles's big problems is he spent several years pinging around like he's in a pinball machine because no one wants to annoy Cromwell, so no one wants to have too close a relationship with him. And so these, actually, those are things that are getting talked about then. If nothing else, it just shows not a lot has changed. <laughs> in a way, our culture expresses itself, because after all, there were people who were worried he was too close to France, because he was, that what our relationship with Europe is also how our nationalism expresses itself
2: absolutely (laughs) so where does it go from here how long are you in London and when do you go elsewhere
1: we are in London until the 18th of September and then we go on tour so we go to Salford first to the Lowry in Salford then we go to Canterbury I think then Cardiff and then Milton Keynes we finish in Milton Keynes which is always the great last hurrah the cast are currently deciding which premiere in to stay in in Milton Keynes at the moment. Exciting <laughs> times. <laughs> oh, the glamour of it.
2: <laughs> but that's brilliant because it means it's in quite a lot of places that people can see yes. it. And I promise you, everyone listening, it is a really fun night out. Thank so you. definitely get your tickets
1: now. <laughs> I don't need to do a plug Lovely now. to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks to my producer Rob Weinberg and my researcher Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.